Amen. Would you show your appreciation to all of our musicians and Jeff for leading us today? We really appreciate Jeff filling in for Kevin while he's under the weather as well. If you don't know me, my name is Chase Stone, the Associate Pastor for Education and Discipleship, and I am honored to be filling in for, for Dr. Cox today while he is a little under the weather. Um, I got two announcements that I need to make you aware of before we move on. These are two very important announcements pertaining to next Sunday, October 23rd. First of all, Sunday school will all meet in here. That's from kindergarten through our senior adult classes. We will all meet in here for a joint Sunday school session. We have uh, the amazing opportunity to have Irina Creek here with us next Sunday morning to share her testimony. If you were able to hear her a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, she's the one who gave her testimony about receiving a shoebox from Operation Christmas Child as a little girl when she was a child in the former Soviet Union. And her testimony is powerful. It's emotional. It is one that you will want to hear. It's one that you want your kids to hear. Um, it tells you the, the, the power of God uh, through a shoebox. And I know many of you are already starting to pack those shoe boxes. Our collection week is November 13th through the 20th. And we want you to hear her testimony before you pack another box because you will never pack them the same way again. I encourage you to be here next Sunday, 9.15 to 10.15. All classes are encouraged to come and join in that together for Irina Creek and her testimony. And secondly, um, next Sunday, the 23rd, over in the gym from 3 until 5, we are going to have a reception for Pastor Andrew and Kimberly and Tate. Um, they have been called to a different church, and we want to just celebrate them. We want to give you an opportunity to come and show your appreciation for eight great years of ministry here at Concord and all that they have done for our students and many of us uh, just in general. So that is a time for you to come and drop in. We'll have some baskets there if you want to drop them a card or a gift of some sort just to let them know that they're loved and encouraged and appreciated before they move uh, back closer to home in Georgia. That'll give you the opportunity. So find your way to the gym between three and five next Sunday. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with to the book of Job. That's where we're going to be today, the book of Job. If you need some direction, if you can find your way to Psalms, it's the book right before that. So you can kind of go to the middle of your Bibles, go back one book, and you'll find Job. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you know that Dr. Cox is in the middle of a sermon series entitled, Overcoming the Wounds of Life. Overcoming the wounds of life. And I don't know about you, but when I am dealing with wounds in my life, when I am suffering through those difficult days in my life, and I'm looking for inspiration, I'm looking for some encouragement from the Word of God, many times I find my way to Job. And the reason I find my way to Job is because Job is a man who understands a thing or two about wounds and being wounded in life, right? But the great thing about Job's story is he also knew what it, knew what it was like to experience great highs and triumphs, right? We, we see Job at one moment. He is on top of the world. He has everything that his heart desires. His family is great. His business is booming. He has everything in the palm of his hand, and it looks like nothing could possibly go wrong until it does. And then the next day, everything's gone. And we find Joseph going, I mean, we find Job going from the top of the mountain to the deepest valley when everything is taken away from him. His life is a roller coaster of biblical proportions, literally. So I want us to take a moment today to try to learn a little something from his experiences and hopefully 
apply those to our experiences because I think all of us know what it feels like to try to overcome wounds in life. But before we do that, I want to talk to you today about three little letters that maybe you're familiar with. Three letters are going to start our, our message off today, and those three letter, little letters are F-A-Q. You familiar with those letters? F-A-Q. What does that stand for? Beautiful. Frequently asked questions. If you spend much time online at all, whether you're shopping or researching or gaming or streaming, whatever the case may be, chances are the website that you are on most of the time has a FAQ page, right? Has a page on the website of frequently asked questions. And the reason they have those is because they're trying to make it user-friendly for all of us, right? There's many times I go to a website and I may have a question about the website itself, how to navigate through the website. I may have a question about the, the product I'm looking for or the service I'm looking for. And those companies have, they've, they've accumulated all of these questions that people ask about those things. And they put them on one page to make it easier for us to find so that we don't have to go in there and try to search for all of our questions and try to figure out what's going on. We can go to the FAQ page and most likely your question is on there somewhere. All you have to do is click on it and it takes you to your answer. It's a beautiful thing. And I didn't know it until this week, but there are awards given out every year for websites and specifically for FAQ pages. Did you know they rated the best frequently asked questions pages on the internet? They have a lot of time on their hands because there's a, there's a lot of them out there. But I learned this week that this past year, the winners were Twitter. Twitter had the number one frequently asked questions page on the internet. YouTube was number two. And McDonald's was number three. <laughs> A lot of questions about Big Macs and Chicken McNuggets, I guess. I don't know. But apparently they do a really good job of answering our questions online. And they tell us that that's a very important part of their website. They want to make it easier for their user, for their customer. They want us to be able to find the answers. And the reason that we go to those pages is because we trust them to answer our question, right? I'm not going to go to Twitter and ask them a question about McDonald's. I'm not going to go to McDonald's and ask them a question about YouTube. I'm going to McDonald's to ask a question about McDonald's. I trust that they're going to know and they're going to have the information that I need. And that's what we do. That's why those questions exist, because we trust those websites to provide us with the information we're looking for, which got me thinking today. Wouldn't it be great if we had an FAQ page for the questions of life? Not about cheeseburgers or Twitter, but those really important questions that we all deal with in life. Wouldn't it be great that we could go somewhere and say, why am I here? Right? What's the purpose in all of this? Should I take this job? Should we get married? Should I move? Should I sell my house? Those big questions that we all have to deal with. Wouldn't it be great if we could just go somewhere and ask those questions about life? And if we did, who would we go to? Who would you go to if you had to ask the questions of life? Who are you going to go to? Who do you trust to give you the right answers, right? If I'm trying to find a question about Twitter, I'm going to Twitter. But if you have a question about the big things in life, who are you going to? And that's where we find Job. 
And Job had some really big questions about life, and Job decided that he was going to go straight to the source. Job questioned God. He said, if I'm going to find out the answers to all these big life questions that I have, I'm going to the source of life. I'm going to God himself, and I'm going to trust that he will answer my question. So let's jump in and take a look at Job's life. Job chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today, if you find your way there. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Let's open up and take a look at his story. It says in verse 1, in the land of Uz, we don't know where that is. That's an obscure location. We can't even really tell you where it is on the map. One thing we can draw from that is the fact that Job is not an Israelite. Have you ever thought about that? We think about all these people we read about in Scripture, these heroes of the faith that we have. They're, they're God's chosen people, right? They're called people. They're the children of God. Job was not one of those. Job was not an Israelite. He was not a Jew. Carry on. It says, in us there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Listen to this verse. He was the greatest man of all the people of the east. That's a great title to have right there, right? God says, this is the greatest man in this entire region of the world. Job is that guy. Carry on. Verse 4, it says, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job, this is the kind of dad Job was, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. So we see very early on that Job had everything, right? Not only did he have everything that his heart could possibly ever desire, he had family and livestock and servants and wealth. He had all of these things, but he was also just a good guy, right? An honorable man that God was pleased with. This is a really good person, someone that we all probably would have liked to have known to have in our lives. The Bible tells us that he was such a good father that after his sons and daughters had their birthday celebrations, now I want you to think about this, for all of you parents with young children, y'all know how stressful birthday parties can be, and they only last about two or three hours, right? Back then in Jewish culture, and he wasn't a Jew, but in their culture, in that time period, um, birthday festivals would have lasted days, possibly a week. Can you imagine having a two-year-old birthday party for a week? Whew. But that's what they did. They would have celebrated possibly for four, five, six, seven days. And Job was the kind of dad that when the festival was over, when the party was over, he would wake up early the next day and offer burnt offerings, sacrifices to the Lord just in case his kids said or did or thought something that was displeasing to God. Not that they did. They might have had a normal family gathering, no problems whatsoever, but he was just in case he wanted to cover his children, and he wanted to ask God to forgive them of anything that they may have done. That's the kind of man we're talking about here. I want to make sure y'all understand this is an upright, blameless man in the eyes of the Lord, a good, solid man, and life was good with him. God was pleased with him. And then after we're introduced to Job in this scene of the, this land of us, the book suddenly changes scenes, and we go from this obscure location in the middle of nowhere to a glimpse into heaven 
with God and his angels and a surprise guest. Turn with me to verse 6. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and who does it say came with them? Satan came with them. Starting to get weird. I already got questions, right? We're going to talk about a lot of questions today. This is my first one. What is Satan doing in heaven with the angels and God, right? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. You see, this is unusual because... There's only one reason Satan would go back and forth on the earth. There's only one reason he traveled all over the place, and that was to wreak havoc on somebody's life, right? He was, as we know from Scripture, he came to steal, kill, and destroy, right? So he was roaming the earth looking for someone to torment, looking for someone to inflict pain upon, and that's what makes God's next statement so strange. Look at verse 8. He says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God knew what Satan was looking for. He's looking for someone to punish. He was looking for someone to, to, to torment. And God says, have you, can, have you considered Job? He says, there's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears the Lord and shuns evil. Is God just throwing Job to the wolves literally here? That's what it sounds like. John Piper had a great quote one time. He said, this reminds him of a jewelry store owner who confronts a burglar who breaks into his shop late at night looking for diamonds. And the, the store owner says, oh, you're looking for diamonds? Have you seen our finest, biggest, brightest, clearest diamond? It's up in the case at the front. Go take a look at that one. All right, don't worry about the little ones back here that you could just collect, but go look at the best one we have. That's what God's doing. He looks at Satan and says, oh, you're looking for someone to torment? Have you tried Job? He's perfect guy, really good guy. I'm pleased with him. Try him. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we keep going. Verse 9, Satan replies to God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land. But look at verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and then, then we'll see the real Job. Then he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is now in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's look at this for a second. Let's look at Satan's theology for a second, right? Our theology is our understanding, our knowledge of God, right? Let's understand what Satan is saying here. In his mind, Job is this righteous, upright, blameless person because his life is seemingly perfect, right? It's easy to be obedient to God. It's easy to praise God and worship God and give thanks to God for all the great things that's happening in your life because everything's great. Satan says his life is pretty much perfect. You've given him everything. You've protected him. He has everything he could possibly want. Why not praise you, Lord? I mean, why not? He has no reason not to. But then Satan says, but, but if all those things go away, if he loses all of the things of this world that he loves so much and his life comes crashing down all around him, then his true colors would show. Then he would curse you to your face. So, what we see is God and Satan, for lack of a better word, I don't know if I can say this in church or not, but they make a bet. 
Right? I'm not sure if we're able can you make a bet in heaven? I guess you can, because God and Satan kind of do it right here. They make a bet. God says, okay, everything he has is yours. It's at your disposal. Just don't kill him. Don't strike him down. You can have all the other stuff, but don't touch Job. And then the rest of the chapter tells us about these disasters that rob Job of everything in his life. Chapter 1 tells us that a servant comes to him and says, Job, I don't know how to tell you this, but all of your livestock, all the sheep, the donkeys, the oxen, the, the camels, all of them, they're gone. They're gone. People came in and raided it. They, they've taken everything. And to make matters worse, not only are you all your, is all your livestock gone, but all of your servants have been killed. Every man and woman that you've had that works for you, that takes care of your animals, they're gone. Everything's gone. Job woke up that day thinking everything was, was fine. Everything was functioning the way it was supposed to. He probably woke up that day feeling like he still had a little bit of control in life and everything was going well. And then his servant shows up and says, you've lost everything. And you can almost imagine Job saying, well, can it get any worse than this? And then another servant shows up. He says, Job, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm... Um, there was this great storm that came through, possibly a tornado or something like that. The wind knocked down the tent at your son's house. All 10 of your children have been killed. They're all gone. You've lost all your livestock, all of your servants, basically your job, your wealth, your security. And you've lost your family. All 10 children are gone. Life as Job knew it was over. Job experienced wound after wound, after wound, and none of them seem to make any sense whatsoever. Why is this happening? Job's got to be looking around like, what in the world is going on? Yesterday, everything was great. One day I have everything, and the next day I have nothing. It's all been taken. God simply turned Job over to Satan and Job's life was turned completely upside down. One day, Job had everything, loving life. The next day, he has nothing. And he's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. How would you respond to that? That's the question that I like to ask. That's the question I have to ask myself when I read this. How would I respond if I woke up tomorrow and I had nothing left? No possessions, no money, no family, nothing. How would I deal with that type of news? Look at verse 20, chapter 1. Look at how Job handles it. It says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. That means he was grieving this, right? He was grieving. He was, he was, his heart had been ripped from his chest. He is grieving in the way that only a man like that could grieve. But notice what it says after that. But then he fell to the ground in worship. Wow. Everything's gone. Everything that he cared about is gone. But it says in that moment, he fell to the ground in worship. So at this point, he's kind of proven Satan wrong, right? Satan says, if you take everything away, Job's not going to worship God anymore. He doesn't care about you. He will curse your name. But Job proves him wrong. Job says, no, I'm still going to be faithful to God, right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, right? We know that from Job. We've been there. And then Satan looks at God and says, well, that's because you didn't let me touch him. 
You let me touch all of his stuff, and you let me touch everything on the, on the outskirts of his life, but you didn't let me touch him. And finally, God says, okay, you can touch him, just don't kill him. Whew, that's tough. I don't hope God never gives Satan that opportunity in my life. You can do anything you want to, just don't kill him. But that's what he does. So Satan then attacks Job personally, attacks his own personal health. The Bible tells us that Job developed sores from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet. It says that he took broken pottery to scratch himself, to scratch the itch, right? That was so bad from these sores that had broken out all over his body. Terrible pain that was inflicted upon him. Awful times in his life. And it's then, at this moment, not after the, the children die, not after the servants die, not after the livestock die, it's when his personal health is invaded by Satan that we see Job develop an FAQ page, right? He's got some questions. Frequently asked questions that probably all of us could ask at some point. Job might have been the first one to ever ask him. He had some questions about why God is allowing this to happen to him. He had some questions that he needed answers for. I want you to go back in time with me for a second in your own lives. I want us all to go back in time, if you will, to when you were about four, five, six years old, somewhere around in there. For some of you, that's just a hop, skip, and a jump. For other of you, that's a journey, right? It's a long way for me to even think back that far. But I want us to try to go back to when you're about four, five, six years old. If you can't go back that far in your own mind, go back to when your kids were possibly four, five, six years old. And I want you to remember the questions that a four, five, or six-year-old ask, right? You've asked them, and they've been asked of you if you're a parent. Kids love to ask a lot of questions, right? And they ask a lot of questions that begin with words like what and where and when. And every parent's favorite is why. You knew it. Why? Every kid has why questions, right? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why, why does why, 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 why? Every kid wants to know why things happen the way they do. You've either asked them or they've been asked of you. Questions like, mommy, 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 why is the sky blue? Daddy, 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 why is the grass green? Mommy, how much salt is actually in the ocean? One, that, one of my boys, I can't remember which one it was now, but one of my boys, when they were little, they asked me one day, they said, Daddy, how does the TV work? <laughs> I was like, it's TV, you know, <laughs> plug it in. And they were like, no, no, I mean, how do, how do we get, like, how do we change the channels? How do we know what's coming? I was like, well, you got this signal, <laughs> and you got a TV, and cable. Uh, it's just, I don't know, plug it in, turn it on and watch cartoons. I don't know. People live in the box. I don't really know. I still know how to answer that question, to be honest with you. If anybody can explain that to me, I'd love to know after the service. I don't know. But we've all been asked those questions, right? Why, why, why? I don't know. I don't know. Why are you asking me these questions? I don't have any idea. And even if we did have the answers to those questions, which I'm sure we could find out why the sky appears to be blue and the grass is green, all those types of things, I'm sure we could find out. But would our kids really understand the answer? If I really wanted to get into it, well, grass is green because of this and this and this. Would they really care? I mean, as a four-year-old, they're going to be like, oh, that's not what I wanted to know. Right? A lot of times we ask questions, we're either asked questions that we don't know the answer to or we ask questions that we can't handle the answer to. 
Flip over to Job chapter 38, almost to the end of the book. From chapter 1 to this point right here, Job has been asking God a lot of questions. He's had friends come, and the friends have basically said, Job, what did you do to deserve this? His wife has turned his back on him. His wife is so frustrated with what's going on in Job's life. She's like, curse God and die. She's left him. His friends are all blaming him. Job is at the end of his rope. He's questioning God about everything. Why questions? Why questions? Why questions? over and over and over again to God. And then we get to chapter 38. I'm not sure if you've ever really focused on these first three verses of chapter 38 or not, but I want you to hear them today. After Job is finished ranting about his life and how everything has gone south, God decides to answer this little four-year-old kid with a why question. Look at what it says, chapter 38, verse one. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm. Imagine that. We could stop right there. That's powerful enough for me right there. He's speaking to him through the wind and the swirling winds and the dark clouds hovering over. The Lord spoke to Job out of a storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's basically saying this guy doesn't know a clue. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, but he wants to question me about how I'm running the world. And then I want you to see this third verse. This third verse knocked me out of my chair this week. I love it. It says, God looks at Job and says, brace yourself like a man. That's tough. I mean, God's looking at him and saying, you better get ready because you asked me questions. Now I've got something to say to you. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you now and you shall answer me. Job wanted answers from God, and now God's turned it on him and said, I've listened to you all these 36 chapters, 37 chapters. Now it's my turn. Job, we're going to ask questions back and forth. Okay, you've asked yours. I've heard them all. You've You've been whining about this for so long. I've heard them all. Now it's my turn. Brace yourself. You know, nothing really good comes after the words brace yourself, does it? (laughs) <laughs> no good news follows. Brace yourself. I got something really great to tell you. No, it's, it's brace yourself as a pilot comes on the airplane. You brace yourself, prepare for con- you know, impact. Usually something bad is happening after brace yourself. And then in verse 4, God begins to ask his questions. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Job, where were you when I filled the oceans with water? Where were you when I told the sun and stars where to hang in the sky? Where were you, Job, when I put all of this into motion? Were you here, Job? No, I don't remember seeing you around anywhere, Job. But yet you think you can come and question me. I don't think God is that sarcastic. I'm adding that part. But he wanted to know, where were you when I created everything? I had Bill read Psalm 19 earlier, and I love that psalm because it tells us about the glory of God and how God's hand is on everything around us. Psalm 19 starts out, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. I think God was saying, Job, look up. Do you have anything to do with any of this up here? Were you around when I created any of this? Do you have any idea how all of this works? I've read that the earth sits on its axis at exactly a 23.5 degree angle. 
23.5 degree angle. And I've read that if that changed by one half of degree, if it was 23 degrees or 24 degrees, it would mess up our gravitational pull so much that when the earth would rotate, it would just sling us all off the earth. We'd just go flying out into outer space. God hung it at 23.5. I've also read that if the earth sat just 5% closer to the sun than it sits right now, we would all burst into flames. And if it sat 10% farther away from the sun than it does right now, we would all freeze to death. There'd be no life on earth. God put it where it needed to be, at right angle, perfect place, perfect rotations, everything. He's the one that told it all where to go. He's the one who created it all. The universe operates on a level that we can't comprehend so that when we ask God a question, I think God looks at it sometimes and says, I can give you the answer, but you won't understand anything that I'm telling you. Like my little boys, how's the TV work? I have no idea. God knows, but he knows that I can't even understand it if he tells me. Joe want to know why bad things happen to good people. You ever asked that question? We've all asked that question. We've all asked it because we feel like we're good people, right? Why do these bad things keep happening in my life? I'm a good person. The Bible tells us that Job was upright and blameless, the best man in all the land, but yet bad things happen to him. I think what God is doing here in this chapter is he's reminding Job that God is God and Job's not. I think we all need to be reminded of that from time to time. God is God. He's in control. He's the reason we're here to begin with. We're not in control. If God were, were to allow us to control the universe for just a few seconds, we'd have planets colliding with each other. We'd have stars falling out of the sky, oceans drying up, mountains crumbling. We'd have the whole thing in a mess in about a minute and a half, right? We're not capable of being in control. We aren't in control because we can't even comprehend what that means. How many of you have found yourself in Job's shoes before? Why me? Why are you doing this, Lord? What did I do to deserve this? Why are you punishing me? You ever question God in that way? One thing I find interesting is that when we do, you know, we, we hardly ever question God about what he's doing when our lives are going great. I hardly ever stop and say, God, why are you being so good to me? I don't ever say that prayer. I usually only question God when things go south. I'm like, God, why are you punishing me? Why are things going so badly for me? Why do you allow these things to happen? We think there's this justice out there. I do what's right. I get good things. I do things that are wrong. I get bad things. We think we deserve the good things because I'm a good person. I haven't done anything wrong today. I deserve all these blessings in my life. I think God is looking at Job and saying, you don't deserve anything, right? You had nothing to do with this. Everything that I've given you, everything that you have, I gave you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. I gave it to you out of my love. And I think that's what we need to stop today and think about. The reason we have what we have and the reason you have a good day is because God gives you a good day. God gives you what you have. So what right do we have to then get mad when it's gone? Job had nothing that didn't come from the hand of God. God wanted to quickly remind him 
that you don't really want the justice of God. We don't really want to balance our life up on the scales and say, okay, how much good have I done? How much bad have I done? And let's reward me or punish me in accordance to that. We don't really want to do that, I promise you. And that's what God is reminding Job of. It's the reminder that I think we all need. Are you wounded in your life today? Are you experiencing wounds in your life? Are you hurting today? Has someone done something to you? Has this world done something to you that's just cut you to the core? Are you experiencing heartache and pain today? If so, you probably have an FAQ page for God. You have a lot of questions that you want want answers for. But I think the first question you probably need to ask and I need to ask is, do I actually trust in the one to whom I'm asking the questions? Because if you trust in the one to whom you're asking the questions, it's a lot easier to accept the answers or maybe even accept the fact that you don't always get an answer. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. We see his life go completely upside down in chapter 1. And for the next 41 chapters, we think God is going to answer Job's question as to why are you doing this to me? But I promise you, you can read it all. God doesn't give him an answer. God doesn't say, okay, I did it because of this. No, God doesn't give an answer. God doesn't have to give us answers to any of our questions. He's God. We're not. For 42 chapters, we're looking for the answer to why do I go through difficulties in life? And God never answers that question for us. I don't know if this is encouraging or discouraging, but if you're looking for an answer to why you go through wounds in life, you're not going to find it. God doesn't give us the whys, the answers to our why questions all the time. God just wants to know, are you going to remain faithful even if I don't give you the answer? That's what the test really was for Job. Job was an upright and blameless man who was pleasing to God. And God wanted to know, will he remain that way if everything is gone? It's the same test that God wants to know if we'll pass. Are you going to remain faithful to the one that you ask the questions of, even if the answer is not the one you're looking for, or even if there's no answer at all. God wants to know if you're going to be faithful no matter what. So we don't always understand why things happen the way we do, but I love one more verse I want you to look at. Flip over to the last chapter, chapter 42. And I think we can find something here in verse 5 that gives us a little bit of an answer, a little bit of an answer, at least a little bit of a direction that we can go when we're asking these difficult questions of life. Look at chapter 42, verse 5. This is Job's response to God saying, embrace yourself. Job says, my ears had heard of you. Basically, when my life was going well, I knew of you. But now that life has crashed down all around me, now my eyes see you. See, when things were going great in Job's life, he'd heard God, he knew of God, but it wasn't until everything was gone and life was crumbling down all around him that he actually knew God. He went from just hearing of of him to seeing him with his own eyes. Maybe that's the answer to the question right there. Maybe that's it. Maybe our wounds are what we need in life that, that allows us to see God, 
not just know that he's there, not just hear of him every now and then, but to actually lay our eyes on him and see his presence in our lives. I heard someone say once that if you want God to use you greatly, he must first wound you deeply. I think the reason he says that is because most of the time in our wounds is when we're drawn closer to God, right? We're closer to God in the wounded times of our lives than we are when everything's going great. Our livestock are in the fields, our servants are taking care of everything, our children are celebrating their feast and their birthdays. I think God uses the wounds to open our eyes. Y'all are probably familiar with the great C.S. Lewis quote that says, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The reason we don't really see God when things are going great is because we don't think about him being the one to thank for all of that. We just go through life and we just kind of ride it out as long as we can. But when things go badly and we're wounded, that's when God gets our attention. He shouts to us in our pains. Are you questioning life today? Are you questioning why things are not going the way you want them to go today? If so, start by asking yourself a few questions. Will I trust him no matter what? Will I trust him no matter what? Will my faith be strong even when I'm wounded, even when I'm hurting? Will my faith be strong? Will I trust in the one who laid the foundations of the earth? Ashley and I were talking about this this week, and she made a good point. She said, you know, the, the questions aren't what's important. It's the one you look to for answers that's important. You may have an FAQ page in your mind right now, a lot of things that you want to ask God, or you just want to ask, and you want someone to help you with. The most important thing is not those questions. It's who are you going to go to to look for answers? If I want to answer about Twitter, I go to Twitter. If I want answers about McDonald's, I go to McDonald's. But if I want an answer about life, I go to the source of life. I'm going to God himself. Maybe you have questions today. Maybe you're looking for something to to fill that void in your life today. Maybe you have suffered wounds and you're trying to figure out, how am I going to deal with this? I invite you to call on the name of Jesus today. Jesus can change everything for you does it necessarily mean that you're not going to suffer and go through wounded moments anymore no i'm not saying that i'm just going to say that he's going to be with you in those moments call on him today there's no time like the present 